So, Chris, what have, what have you been uh, searching in the, in the uh, job opening category? <laughs> All right, so let me start with the cliche, which is something in the forestry industry, something like that, because, of course, that's like the less realistic one, because as soon as you start researching it, you realize that bar to entry is terrible, period to entry is a nightmare. Uh, the shameless materialist in me is actually thinking about real estate, because there's uh, a girl in Florida who I know who's into real estate, and there might be a sublimated crush happening there. I can't tell if I'm actually interested in it or if this is just me exploring that sublimated crush. And then let's see, the uh, ideal scenario is probably going to be something like I found an article two days ago where you can teach in Nigeria, uh, teaching English, getting 60K a year, but you're only going to have to live on like 20. And it would get me out of the administrative nest of vipers that i'm in right now uh totally fresh new scene uh so that's out there as a possible option as well we'll see i always ask that's that question and you always <laughs> you always have different answers i love it always different my uh, answer is always different whenever you ask me that uh so uh welcome everybody we're uh we're logging in for another episode of our uh, wild roof journal podcast today uh two guests one has been published in Wild Roof Journal. One is soon to be published. So uh, just get a quick intro. You can say who you are, who you are, and why you're here. Uh, and then we'll dig into uh, just a couple of kind of like writerly, uh, what to do when this happens kind of questions, and see where it goes. Evan, you're the uh, you've been around uh, the Wild Roof block a couple of times. You've been on a podcast before. You've been in the issues. Uh, so I'll let you go first. Nice to be back with Wild Roof Community. Um, I'm Eben Bine. Uh, he or they pronouns are great. Um, I am uh, calling in from Nipmuc land, also called Littleton, Massachusetts, um, close to where I grew up in a house where this weekend I actually spent uh, time with um, the Chickadee Collective, which is a little group of poets that uh, I I hang out with this weekend, um, editing and workshopping, and I, I'm I'm here happy to be with a publication that um, has celebrated my work the most times of any other place <laughs> that I've submitted, and so it's uh, really special to be to be back. Awesome, sounds great. And Morgan, hi. Uh, so I am Morgan Stevens. I am. Um, here in Washington, D.C., and this is the first time I'll be appearing in Wild Roof Journal, and I'm very excited. Uh, this is also my first poetry collection. I come from a uh, journalism background, and, you know, poetry was one of those things that I just kind of held in my heart, I think, and, and did outside of what I did professionally. And uh you know things change and i'm thrilled to be able to share uh um one of the poems in my debut collection with wild roof journal this is actually the first poem that is being published so i'm it's 
it's a big deal um, for me and I'm just so excited. It's, it's such a personal collection and um, yeah, just, just happy to be here and, and share kind of the process of that. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So um, always the first, first publication is always a little special. I don't know. I don't know if you can, if you can get around it. It just, it just is. That's one of the things when this kind of aligned uh, with the two of you, one of the things that came to mind with with um, something we could talk about, just like, okay, how how does this happen? Well, you have, you're right, okay, you think it's good. Some days you look back at it, again, you think it's terrible. Um, which one is, you know, which one's true? Uh, is it good? Is it great? Is it the best thing ever? Is it the worst thing ever? Um, so just that kind of process and the, the ups and downs of, of the writing experience is something that is just kind of interesting because I think almost everybody, I think it's safe to say, kind of shares it to some extent. First things first, like, how did you come to it? So yeah, Morgan, you said it's kind of always something you carried with you a little bit uh, to some extent, even if you weren't doing it all along. But just once you decide, okay, I'm going to like start writing something down, whether it's in a notebook or on a file. Um, how does that creation, I mean, you ended up with a chapbook. How does that like unfold as far as like once you get rolling, how did it look for you? So yeah, you can, whoever wants to uh, take a stab at that one first. I'll take a stab at it. I, it was weird because, you know, poetry was kind of, or at least this collection was something that had to happen when nothing else could. I was in um, a place of physical decline, cognitive decline. I The collection is about me and chronic illness, specifically long COVID. And, um, you know, that is an illness that took me out of this very straight and narrow path. And set me in <laughs> my house every day. And, and, you know, I, I knew I needed to write down the experience. And initially I had actually started with a memoir and I realized soon that not to say that the, I, I won't, you know, eventually write a memoir, but it was, it was less visceral and it was more technical. And I wanted just to get to the heart of the matter. And I found that I would wake up in the morning and even just sitting with my phone typing out on my, like, what is it? I, you know, my notes on my iPhone, that little app that we all have, I would type out poems there. And a lot of the poems, you know, ended up staying in the collection. Those, those first ones that I was just, it was almost like this catharsis. And I'm sure a lot of writers can, can connect with that. I suppose this, this kind of like purging of, of just needing to get out what I had seen and what I was feeling. And, um, you know, a lot of the times it was surreal. So I needed to put that um, on pen and paper, so to speak. And so that's kind of how it started. Oh, I love uh, Morgan, this uh, idea as somebody who is more of a prose writer too. I also did a sort of journalism school of sorts and I was a, a teacher, a science teacher, but was like sort of in prose land and then needed the flexibility and challenge and freshness of poetry to bring um, 
bring new words and new orders and new rests into my sentences um, to sort of match and understand some of what was emotionally going on um, and and to create something from that also feels really powerful. I think, you know, I think about artists that have uh, really changed my life that from the way that they process sad things, I'm thinking about, you know, Joni Mitchell um, or um, Sharon Olds, um, you know, uh, people who re there's something about this moving in and through the most painful things uh, to to find the beauty in them is so um, this has been so precious for me in my own healing um, and and something that I sort of am after in terms of when uh, I sort of came poetry, though, it was somewhat earlier, not as a writer, but as a reader um, in ninth grade. Uh, and I, there was a big poetry project. And my mom was a big part of bringing me to poetry, her and I exchanging poems, uh, which later when I uh, read my piece in Wild Roof, you guys might get a glimpse of that. Totally, uh, totally off the top, but uh, do you have a hot take on, since you mentioned Joni Mitchell, uh, do you have an opinion on Randy Newman? I'm not familiar <laughs> enough to have an opinion. I'm sorry. Okay, fair enough. I would pick him if I had to pick the musician who writes lyrics that are good enough to be poetry um, that like attacked me as not even, I, I was probably in seventh grade just like a uh, knitting needle into the heart, like, oh, someone is expressing everything. Feeling. Uh, I would put him in the top two of those. And yeah, I was right starting to get into music and to get into poetry. And he seemed like everybody's uh, talking about Bob Dylan. I was like, ah, he's my he's my sweet spot. That's I send me some song recs, Chris, because I, I, I would I would love to, but I haven't. Haven't there's, there's, there's two or three that might uh, you, you might be like, oh, this is like corny New Orleans bluesy stuff, or they may destroy you from the inside. So it could go either way. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like poetry, right? It's like, yeah, this is just kind of like it's there. It's easy to dismiss. But when it does hit you, it, you know, it has an impact. Yeah, I wrote down, I wrote down catharsis, purging, get it out. So there's, there's this kind of uh, theme I think, yeah, I mean, it's a real thing that a lot of people share is like, we write because we need to. <laughs> it's not like, what am I going to do today? Like, let's set up like some options. Sometimes it just happens because we, we have to do it for whatever the circumstances. I'm sorry, on that thread really quick. Uh, I think a shift that has happened for me in the last year, I'm now three years into like sort of taking poetry pretty seriously. Um, so it's relatively fresh for me, but I think early on in my writing, I sort of rolled my eyes whenever artists or poets would be like, oh yes, well the poem has its own agenda and has its, is like its own beast. And I used to be very grumpy about that and very like, you know, stop with this woo woo. There's craft in every art. I want to find my way in. And now the pendulum has swung. And like what you were saying about catharsis, this sort of like I need to learn from my poems. I need to learn from whatever those beings are that are on the other side of the ethereal boundary that poke their heads through in the form of a poem. And I need to know what they have to teach me. Um, uh, so I've, anyway, just I that sort it's like the catharsis, both what comes out of me, but also this sort of like 
the universe enters into <laughs> poetry writing to to offer us things. And I I think I have a very different layer of respect and need for what the world has to teach me. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating when that happens, isn't it? <laughs> when like, yeah, you write something and then it's, you have to kind of deal with what you wrote in this kind of like, kind of weird, like there's a little bit of distance between the person who wrote it and the person who's like then now dealing with it and trying to make it into something cohesive or coherent or whatever. And I'm curious if you're coming from a journalistic background, is there a, either a tension or a mutual reinforcement between the style of writing where if you're being journalistic, you're supposed to be objective, you're trying to be as uh, you know literal and concrete as possible with information and how you communicate it. Um, and then with poetry, where you might be getting something out of yourself that, you know, again, could be from like the ethereal plane or subconscious or actual kind of spiritual energy. Uh, how do you kind of think about that in your own writing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I definitely separate the two, but I think there's a little bit, people have this idea about journalism that it's it's very objective and non-biased, but we pick which stories we want to tell. And we have a worldview because we're human beings. And yes, there are facts. Of course, there's facts. And you can't debate whether, you know, it rained today or not. Um, but we have a perspective. I think one of the best journalists, in my opinion, was Hunter S. Thompson. And he had a perspective on the world. But he also, there was truth in his writing. But because of his perspective, so I, I I think I brought that into the process. But I I do recognize too that, especially with a lot of the kind of confessional uh, poems that I have in this collection, um, you know, I use I a lot. It's rare unless you're you know writing an op-ed or uh, speaking about yourself. Um, especially in things that aren't as flattering is kind of frowned upon in media. We have these kind of steel armors of I'm impenetrable and I need to be looked at as a reliable source. And poetry is the opposite of that. And I think that's what I absolutely love about it because there is like such a truth, ironically, there is a truth in poetry that you may not get from journalism because of its veneer of objectivity. It's just a different type of truth. It may be, I'm not saying it's not a factual truth. There's even still, there's things that I, I write about, um, you know, in the poem that's being published in Wabrook Journal that, you know, Aaron knows there, there it's, it's, there's, there's facts or there's things that have happened that I write about. And I'm sure you guys do as well, but it's from what I saw and how I perceived it. Um, so, and how it's affected me. I think you speaking on, on the subconscious, like that's really fascinating to me because I've kind of learned, and as I'm sure you guys might know too, like the more you write, the more you kind of get to know yourself and what you really feel and how you think about things in ways that you didn't recognize before because you didn't have to. And when you're writing things, you're like, you know, the poem that I wrote, it's about, it's about my mother and the way that, you know, things might've affected me as a child. Did I think of that before I, you know, it wasn't something I, I thought about as much, but it was, 
ingrained in me subconsciously. And so that's, I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer to, yeah, it's, it's different and it's, it's risky. You know, I'm not going to say that it's not risky because I'm still a journalist, but I don't, I think going through the illness that I went through, I hate to say this, but frankly, I don't really care. You know, I am going to be true to my work and what I've seen and what I've experienced because life is too, too short not to. Would never have been able to guess whether or not Hunter S. Thompson would still be involved because put Randy Newman top three music. I'd put Hunter S. Thompson top three writer heroes of all time. So that's awesome to hear. My dad kind of was, I turned 11. He's like, there's a difference between actual truth and emotional truth. And the literature may get you the emotional truth. Oh, okay, dad. And uh, the last 30 years have been kind of adding nuance onto that kind of basic setup that they're both true, but there's going to be a lot of intertwined, complex ambiguity and paradoxical stuff happening. That's Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, yeah, I guess um, now's probably a good time to share a little, like, our exchange. <laughs> Me and I have had an exchange on email, and I was just being, it was like 9 p.m. at night, I was just being kind of, like, sloppy with my word choices, and I my, my question was something, because I was, like, sharing what we can talk about you know, something like, well, how do you get objectivity when when you're writing? Like, how do you get an objective sense of like if if it's doing what you want to do, if it's communicating what you want to communicate? And I think Evan, if I hope I'm getting your your uh, sentiment right, it's like I'm not sure I like that word or something like that. And but yeah, that's I mean I think ultimately we we are on the same page because I I didn't mean objectivity. I meant something like how how do you get like a, a useful insight into your writing? And something to reveal what you really meant or what you can what you can gain from it and what you can learn from it. And that's of course different than like objectivity, like you like you were saying, with in a more kind of like strict sense. So yeah, like how I mean, it's kind of a weird, messy process because you're you're bouncing it off if it's somebody else or if it's just your 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 future self, like later on down the road or something. How do you get like a useful insight into like this thing you poured out? Um, when you're looking to tighten it up and make it into um, something that can be a, a publishable piece, um, if that makes sense as a question. <laughs> Morgan, you want to kick this one off? Yeah. No, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. If it, yeah. Um, how do I tighten my work up? God, what what do they say? Kill, well, killing your darlings? Uh -huh. um, <laughs> well, it's tough because I, I don't know, like, sometimes I feel like if you get rid of too much, you get rid of what you actually wanted on the page. But then at the same time, I feel like sometimes you really need to make it more concise or choose a different word or take that line out that just didn't stick out to you and just was kind of there. But keep that favorite word and think about why is that or say that a line sticks out to you. And you're like, why does, at least this is what I, I try to do is why does this line stick out to me so much? Like, what do I love about this line? And why does it just capture me? And, you know, I, 
if it's not a line like that, I try to really look at it and see if I need it or not. But then at the same time, it's, this is not an easy process because you're looking, it's hard to go from like, I'm looking at a whole, the wholeness of a poem to narrowing it down to the technical line or even word of it. And that is a really tough thing to do, especially with your own work, I think, because we're looking at it through a different lens than a reader who is not the one who has written it. Um, so I don't think there's any easy answer or one answer to this. It's kind of just cut through the brush as much as you can and hope that you keep what, you know, you meant to start out with. And if you haven't, you can always go back. You can always go, like, I always save, I always save my first drafts and all of, all of, you know, that part of the process, because if I'm looking at a poem and I've, you know, I'm, it's just not what I thought it was at the beginning, or I'm not as happy with it. I I will kind of look at the earlier versions and see if I've cut out something that, oh, maybe that's interesting. Maybe I should kind of expand on that. So. Oh, yeah, Morgan. Uh, you're thank you for putting words to that i think like i love it's a tough question yeah no it's so good and i love how you sort of started with the like kill your darlings which i think is something that we've heard before and also has a sort of like violence and a little bit less nuance than i think we actually mean when like doing a writing process like i just this weekend i actually said to like some of my other poets i feel like this weekend there's some more times that i sort of asked my darlings if they wanted to step aside, you know, so that like, to be like, I want to know, you know, like, I I, I want to sort of imagine them having agency to teach me about whether they are necessary or not. And actually to trust that a lot of the times if I ask, and, and for me, the asking is, let me remove it and see how it reads, um, is then like, oh, yeah, no, it doesn't need to be here. Or it makes itself known. And it's like, wait a minute, no, this is necessary. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think I understand why we use that sort of brutal language. And I think it's because um, when we have, well, or for me, when I develop personal attachment to a piece, there's a sort of violence that I need to commit towards myself in order to move the piece on through time. But if I'm in a dance with the piece and it feels more like pruning or more like gardening or you know, some more of a dance, um, uh, then it sort of re- reduces that sense of, of violence. Another thing that you, um, and Aaron, this is also connected to what you were saying about believability, you know, what, like what makes a poem believable? When Morgan was sharing how important it was for her to get vulnerable and to just sort of say what was going on in her life, to me, that's such a part of emotional believability of like, you know, regardless of, factual objectivity, you know, that uh, the part of bearing the soul and really showing yourself being ugly um, to, you know, to like showing yourself as three-dimensional, like makes us uh, a speaker into a flawed human. I think all of us have seen those poems that are polished, that, um, that, that polish away the speaker's flaws, not just the poem's flaws until it becomes sterile. I know I've done that to some of my own poems. I, I think that sometimes that thing that I have to go back and hunt for for my early drafts is a part where 
the lump was really in my throat or, you know, my voice cracked, <laughs> you know, in some way uh, while writing. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much there. So much good stuff. Do you find it, is it a combination of like just re rereading it through time and then also getting like, you know, a trusted, trusted person to give you a little bit of like course correction? Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's, it's got to be, you know, I, I think right the answer is bulk, right? <laughs> Yeah. And like to that latter point, I think just like Morgan was saying about we can't ever really know what the reader is like. Like, yes, I read over often. But to me, another critical part of building believability is testing it out on other people. And that means community that that means community through time. And that's hard because some parts of writing are so preciously solo and need to be. It's like this combination where you need the solitude to come into a deep relationship with yourself and what your words are saying and this beautiful moment to test um, and and ask, is this doing what I think it's doing? And I, like sometimes that's nice to do in a one-on-one, -on -one, but for me, the progression is usually a one-on-one -on -one, and then it's in a group where I can hear multiple voices disagree about parts of my poem. And I love those moments um, or, or when I disagree with somebody else about somebody else's craft choice, where I think it does this beautiful thing where as a writer, when you hear two people disagree over a part, it helps you exercise this muscle of not being precious and not thinking that any one move was actually the clear, the clear and key move, right? Like I think I can become very proud of myself with my craft, like, oh, I did it just so. And the fact that I broke the line there is the reason that the poem is good, you know, like get really reinforced about my own power and influence when it's like fucking no like art is a mystery we don't understand how it works and um part of helping me remember how much of a mystery it is happens when i see two people disagree about a choice i made it's just really important part of the process for me this might sound like a tangent but i, I think i can i can bring these back together so a lot of what we're talking about has to do with the negative, uh, particularly trauma, exercising trauma, thinking about trauma, and to what extent you can use writing for catharsis, uh, sharing that and having somebody else kind of witness some deep element of that. And I've done a lot of that for sure. But this would be a question for anybody who wants to tangle with it about um proof of concept when you read in a group. So this could be for an audience or it could be for a writer's group. Um, if you're talking about trauma, everybody's gonna be a little bit more locked up and shy about honest criticism. So it's if they disagree, then you kind of get to see an organic, okay, that's because they're not challenging you, they're talking to each other about what it means, but there's still this, this tendency if it's about something very serious, um, physical illness for instance and in my case all of mine is about my dad who is my favorite person but who's also like borderline schizophrenic and has some deep-seated mental health issues um my cheat for that and i don't know how much this is a cheat or if it's legitimate is humor because you can do humor in front of an audience of maybe one or more people and if it's funny they laugh and if it's not funny they don't and it's the only kind of immediate like, OK, this thing worked when I uh, formulated this line in my head that was hoping we get a laugh. And you just hear the audience like, eh, it's like a nervous obligation. But when they really laugh, they really laugh. 
And I think that's one of the reasons we like stand-up comedians so much is they, they get honed in a way, uh, trial by fire, that might be a little different than a writer's workshop, where there's a little bit more, you know, you know nobody wants to hurt anybody else's feelings. And so I like, I like writing funny, partly because you get to focus group it with a very literal, you know, it's very serious razor to cut off the fat and sides. But I think it's also a totally fair way to start dealing with trauma. So Vonnegut's another favorite guy. So him talking about the bombing of Dresden in World War II, that's the you know, epicenter of a traumatic young person's experience. But you can you can clearly see him working through a cathartic experience, but also using humor as, I would argue, a wholesome way to kind of tangle with that. That was more than I meant to say about that. But if anybody wants to chime in, go for it. I'll jump in. Absolutely agree with you. Humor. I, I think I use humor in my everyday life to get through <laughs> a lot of trauma. Um, I hope I can incorporate it more into my poetry because that's just, that's who I am. Um, right now, I think, we, so two things that you had mentioned, R doing readings when things are, Poetry is always intimate, right? It's always very pers personable. Uh, like, is that? I don't even know if that's the right word, but it's it's intimate. And poetry about trauma is even more intimate, and about chronic illness, and about you know, like you had mentioned, mental health, um, all of these things that are so stigmatized and shamed in society that it's it's hard to even speak about them, much less write about them in such a vulnerable way. And so one thing that I've, um, you know, struggled with, frankly, as, as a, a debut poet is um, not knowing if the poetry is, is good or if it's not good or being scared to kind of put it out there in a way where it could get torn to shreds. Not because, I mean, it all, it never feels, rejection never feels good, right? Nobody wants to wake up and be rejected. But I think what makes it difficult with poetry, especially poetry, when it comes to trauma, mental illness, chronic illness, all of these things that show a lot of frailty and weakness is that when you tear, when that's torn down, it's such a, fragile part of who we are already that it makes it even more difficult to kind of grapple with instead of just the okay well this poem maybe wasn't the right you know their taste or right for the literary publication whatever the case may be but having that um that kind of extra kind of stab of <laughs> Wow. Okay. Not only did the poem suck, but it was about my mother who has like, you know, OCD and whatever the case may be, you know, and I'm, I'm being frivolous, obviously, but, but, but there, there is some, some truth to that. So I think that's kind of what took me into why I just went into wanting to do a, a collection for, you know, I submitted to a few publications, but I found that I had a collection and it was cohesive and I had written it kind of in a short period of time. And I've never been one to kind of, I don't know, follow traditional paths anyway in my life. And I felt like 
I don't really care. You know, of course I care, but at the same time, I, I really don't care. And I just want it out in the world because I know what I've written is true to me. And, um, what, however someone perceives it or deems it good or bad or whatever value they give to it doesn't really matter because the value I give to it is that I wrote what really happened and that's the highest value. So, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's tough. It's really tough. Um. Three days ago, um, I got my first paid acceptance on a poem that was rejected 52 times. Um, and I, so it's like, I think also just take a moment to be there to remember that there are so many people making art and trying to make art. And this is like, we're trying to survive under capitalism. Art doesn't make money. It's such a saturated environment that to me, uh, I, I enjoy those exercises. I actually celebrate and tweet my number of rejections every so often. Like I hit the thousand rejections a few months ago, like, and that was the big deal. And of course, like along with that, I like am much more published <laughs> you know, than, you know, than I was two years ago. And yeah, I think that did require, but I, I, I anyway, I understand this dance around rejection um, and it's, it's really, it's really tricky. And I think that there's data out there to help us remember that it's not personal, um, even though it's really hard <laughs> um, to remember that. Um, so I find myself trying to exercise looking for that. Um, and to your point, um, Chris, about humor, I just wanted to say, uh, sometimes, sometimes I'm able to be funny uh, rarely mostly to myself um but you know every so often that, that occurs um one thing that i am very curious about is when is the function of humor to um dispel and guard ourselves as writers versus when is it like a component that we're adding to a piece that actually like brings all of the aspects of life in like i get very interested when i'm both laughing and i'm crying like that's when <laughs> that's when i feel the most sort of alive um uh and the last thing i wanted to say comes from a, a stem that aaron you mentioned which uh was about whether you're speaking it out loud or not um just this weekend um with this collection of poets it's mostly people who write for the written page but there were a few of us who um uh who do slam and in slam circuits, especially in the slam circuit that we're that we're part of, there's this sort of like confessional safe space aspect where people who don't feel able to tell their story anywhere else come to the space in order to share, which completely changes the dynamic from, say, this last weekend where like the purpose was to workshop. And so I think another thing that feels really important to me anytime engaging with my own art or with somebody else's art is to ask, what are you looking for? Are you looking to just be heard or are you looking for reactions from a craft perspective and being as willing to give whichever the other person wants and to try to test for myself, which I really want? Because sometimes I think I'm ready to get craft, but I'm not actually. Actually, I just need to be seen. Um, and so trying to develop that discernment um, for myself is always a really important part of being a human writing poetry. Let's see if I can make a, a, a short move from 
your point about rejection first, because that's a key one that I think is super universal or close to universal. And then back to possible tactics for using humor. Um, in terms of rejection, I love that concept. You hear this so often. Stephen King had a little like board where he like put all the rejections that he got and he stuck a pin through it and it gradually the pin got larger and larger. And so he had to stack up 142 rejections and then carry that public or whatever. Um, in my own life, I've been not taking enough chances. And the way I, because I'm me, have to uh, functionally deal with this is I haven't been taking a lot of creative chances and I have not gotten back on the horse in terms of dating. And even with something like dating, it's like, all right, listen, you should probably go out and talk to some girls and start stacking up a jar of rejections and figure, all right, we got to put a number of rejections in the jar and then assume once the jar gets this full, then uh, you got to think of that as those are wins because you're filling the jar or adding to the little nail or you know, just creating this sense of it's good to take chances. Rejection is evidence that you're putting yourself out there. Uh, so trying to connect that back to humor, you can totally use humor as an insecure coping mechanism. Oh, thank God I got the laugh. So I have value, right? And you're still kind of dealing with the same kind of insecurity. Um, but that's uh, at the social level. You said something like, sometimes I think I'm funny to myself. I think that's totally valid. Like if you tell yourself a joke that you think is funny, I think that's 100% valid and could be helpful. Uh, so I've done things like when I was, I think, uh, 17, my dad threatened me with a loaded weapon, a loaded gun. Don't tell anybody because it's technically a felony. <laughs> and I was able within three days to be like, this, this is kind of ridiculous. This is actually kind of funny. And I was able to formulate it because I knew nothing serious would happen ultimately, but I'm still sitting on all of this trauma that I'm accumulating so that he can do something like, well, oh, I think you should get a, a pug instead of a Boston Terrier. And that will still like be equally threatening to something seemingly physical and high stakes. Making fun of it sometimes can literally disarm it, even if it's just inside your own head. Then if that gets into the writing, you can kind of figure out What's the absurdity here? Where are we able to figure out this is just ridiculous? It might be horrible and traumatic, and it's also ridiculous. And maybe, you know, teasing out that ridiculousness, the Daily Show figured that out 20 years ago. Um, they think there's value in that also. It's also why I like Hunter S. Thompson. I think he's a, a master of that sweet spot. Agreed. Wow. We're going to press pause on this conversation. But before we do, Chris, you got to show up in your T-shirt. So I'm support. I'm teaching a writing for the STEM field uh, <laughs> class this semester. So it's like, yep, science matters. Uh, science literacy is a thing. And facts are real. <laughs> the earth is round. I don't care what you say. Your opinion doesn't matter in this class. Save that for my poetry class. That's where everybody's opinion is valid. But yeah, since I'm teaching a STEM class, I'm like, all right. Represent. This yeah, and the I, I other thing to be a science <laughs> which is what they're referring to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now, now working on age advocacy with young people, so it's also kind of similar. And then, Chris, you're getting dangerously close to our other podcast, which is on dating. So, if, you're, if you enjoy that tangent, we'll, we'll start that up soon. Um, J.K. Yep. J.K. Absolutely. Um, I feel like we do a call-in show. Use my bad experiences to help other people yeah. make. I got I got some texts. Do you want to read some texts to share? Um, 
But yeah, so we'll, we'll press pause on this. We'll <laughs> say uh, we'll say goodbye for now. Don't go anywhere though. Um, so yeah, great Evan, great Morgan. Thank you again, Chris. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you guys. Love it. Thank you.